Well, as believers, one of our favorite things to share with one another uh, is our testimony. We like telling people how it is that we came to saving faith in Christ. And the reason that's such a significant thing for us is because when we were converted, something happened. Something actually took place. It was significant to us. In fact, it's not uncommon that I'll go out to lunch or coffee with somebody who's newer to the church and Later that night, I'll be telling my wife about that meeting and saying, oh, man, this person uh, came to faith in Christ this way. And I share the, the person's testimony with her that she kind of gets to hear that uh, and kind of know that person and a little bit about how they have had such a significant moment in their life. And then she'll ask me something like, oh, and uh, what, what does he do for a job? Oh, I don't, I don't remember. I'm not sure about that. How many kids? I don't know. He may not even have any kids. What? You know, how do you not remember? Well, because what strikes us as so significant is how a person goes from lost to found. How a person goes from darkness to light. We use language all the time that we find in the Bible, things like going from being blind to being able to see, from from spiritual death to spiritual life. We use all kinds of wonderful language that we find, from being slaves to sin to free from the slavery to sin. One of my favorites, maybe my very favorite illustration, it is a metaphor, it is significant, it's very true in the Bible, that refers to the way in which a person becomes converted, is by the new birth, become born again. In fact, Christians are oftentimes in our day just referred to as born again. You might even ask a person, when did you get born again? Why? Because that's such a significant line. And it points to such a significant point in life. The only other thing that can even come close to comparing to how important your conversion is is the fact that you came into existence in the first place. Changes everything else in our lives. Today we are going to read of the first time in all of sacred scripture that salvation in Christ and the idea of being born again is directly connected. It's the first time that being born again in the New Testament way is ever brought up. We're going to see who gets this wonderful privilege of being born again and how that happens in a person's life. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to John chapter 1. The last time we were here, I I read through verses uh, 6 through 11. So what I'm going to do is just back up a couple of verses to get a running start. Read 9 through 13. We're just going to cover verses 12 and 13 today. So go ahead and turn there, and I'll read out loud 9 through 13. I'll pray, and we'll go back starting in verse 12. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you, first and foremost, for this word. Thank you for writing it for us. Thank you for preserving it for us and delivering it today. Thank you that not only uh, do my brothers and sisters here get to hear uh, their brother preach this, but, Father, they can go home and open this again and, and spend uh, 
hours and days and weeks and even years studying through the things that you have given to us. We thank you for that gift. But Lord, help us to understand. Help us to soak in this passage and to to gain insight. We love you more fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting back again at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. That's how this starts right here. I want you to remember with me just a few verses earlier, which I just read for you and we unpacked last week. The apostle just made the point that Jesus came into this world and yet he was not received by his creation. The last couple of verses highlight the rejection of Jesus in coming into the world. We kind of began to uncover, unwrap a bit the doctrine of human depravity, the fact that we resist even our creator. In fact, I made the argument then, and it's not a hard argument to make, that because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the greatest sin is not doing that. And so we are all guilty of the greatest sin because we had not received Christ in our sinfulness. And of course, that's true. But not only were we told that the peoples of the world generally rejected Christ, we were even told back in verse 12, back in verse 11 rather, that the very people of God, the Israelites, the one who had been given the prophets and the writings and and even given the forerunner John the Baptist, even those people who should have known the Jews rejected Christ. No group of people in the world was more obviously guilty more obviously morally culpable for rejecting Jesus than the Jews, surely of all people, they at least should have known better. And yet, they too rejected their Messiah. They were the best bet for humanity. But John does not mean to convey that the rejection of Jesus is universal. Well, we're going to see this for a while. In fact, just try this on. Maybe store this away in your mind. The first 12 chapters of the book of John especially highlight the Jewish rejection of Jesus. You go 12 chapters in. You just keep seeing, run repeat. The people who reject God are the Jews, and the people who embrace God, ironically, are not the Jews. It's just incredible how we see that in John. So it's going to come about more and more and more as we continue into this book. But John is not conveying that the rejection is universal because not only is the author, the apostle John himself, a believer in Jesus, one who does not reject him at his writing, but also he just told us about John the Baptist, who, while not the light, came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist surely did not reject Jesus. And now he goes on to explain that there are even more, more who will, who actually will receive and not reject Jesus. You know, we use a whole bunch of language to refer to the point of a person's conversion. We might, we might ask questions like, when were you born again? Like I just said. Some would say, when did you become a believer? When did you become a Christian? Uh, some people might just use a short form. When did you get saved? Heard that one? When did you get saved? I've heard people say, how did you come to know the Lord? Tell me about when you first accepted Jesus. He says, all language that we can kind of find a, a basis for in the Bible. And so I think all of those are appropriate bits of language to use. But I personally prefer the language of 
receiving Christ. When did you receive Christ? And the reason I, I, I typically ask it in that way is because of John chapter 1. But to, it, it stands in stark contrast of those who reject Christ, who did not receive him, but to those who did receive him. Those who did receive Jesus. Now, what does it mean to receive Jesus? Let's unpack just a few things about that here. Notice first that receiving Jesus is equated with believing Jesus. You see that here? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Now, there might be some students of Greek in here. I know that there's some classes at our church that are going through some of this. Uh, Just for your sake, you might notice if you're studying this in Greek that the term who believed in his name is actually backloaded. It's at the end of the verse, but it has the exact same meaning. But to all who did receive him is equated with believing in Jesus. We receive, receive people and things all the time. Think, think about receiving. Just get your mind with me here on a basic definition. We receive gifts from others, tangible things. Uh, we, can, we can receive immaterial things like a compliment. I received the compliment today. Or maybe even a rebuke or an admonition. Uh, you're, I, I hear what you're saying about that fault in my life. I receive what you're saying. I embrace it. I accept it. I acknowledge it, right? There are many intellectual ways in which a person can accept, and it implies a willingness to accept it. You're not receiving a rebuke if somebody rebukes you and you go, that's not me, that's not receiving it, right? It's implying an acceptance of that thing being stated. But to receive Jesus means more than just assent, than than just a, sure, why not? Receiving Jesus requires belief. That's one of the first things we see here. This is why just because a person is receptive to the gospel or not openly hostile to Jesus does not mean that that person has necessarily believed in him, right? You and I have run into people at varieties of uh, different uh, uh, points on the spectrum of hostility to Christ. And some are like, hey, I'm, I'm up for anything. You, yeah, that sounds good. This Jesus guy sounds great. I'm receptive to that. That does not mean the same thing that they have believed in his name. To receive Jesus is to believe in Jesus. But the text unpacks even more for that. It doesn't merely say to believe in Jesus. Did you notice? Who believed in his name, in his name. Now, this language is especially significant in the original language because the people in that time, the ancient authors, had in mind something much more significant than you and I do about a name, about a name. In fact, you and I might even know people in our lives who have changed their name for a variety of reasons. In fact, it's, a, it's all the rage today for a person to change their name or even change their gender and what they want people to refer to them to, but it doesn't change anything about the person because a name is disassociated with that. So to paraphrase Shakespeare in our English language, let me think about this, a rose by any other name still smells as sweet, right? Why? Because no matter what you call a rose, it's still a rose. But in this day, a name was much more significant. This is why whenever Jesus renamed someone, Simon, you are now Peter. 
even in a little bit of the same way, uh, uh, Saul becoming Paul. Definitely in the Old Testament, a handful of characters whose names are changed. Name changes are very significant in the Bible days. We don't tend to attach it quite that same way. So, in, so this is what it means to believe in Jesus, to believe in his name. I want to quote for you Acts 4.12. You might be familiar with this one. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other, remember, name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. What does that mean? Well, it means, especially to these ancient writers, it's that it's putting an emphasis on the fullness of the person of Christ in all that he is, all that he does, and all that he says. You and I interact with this all the time, whether or not you've yet realized it. As Utahns, uh, surrounded by a dominant Mormon culture, uh, you and I have likely met many people who would say that they believe in Jesus. They, they be, and because they believe in Jesus, maybe even his name is a part of their church's name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. See, Jesus Christ, it's in the name, right? And so I, just even a couple of weeks ago, uh, Laura and I had invited some missionaries over to our home. They're sitting at our table. And one of the first things that they did is try to build the bridge. And they're like, well, it's nice to be amongst other Christians. And they looked at me after I kind of just nodded for a second. And they were like, but you probably don't think that. And I was like, no, I, I don't think that we're, whatever we are, we're not the same. Because we're, we're not both Christians. And they were like, we've heard that so many times, it's confusing to us. Why you don't think we're Christians, we believe in Jesus. But see, the problem is not believing in Jesus, believing in his name. Believing in everything he said about himself, everything that he is, everything that he determined he will do. It's believing and receiving all of Christ, all of him. Not just the preferable parts. That's what makes a person a child of God, which we're going to get here shortly. We must believe in everything, all that he came to accomplish, what he said about himself. Simply believing in the existence of the historical figure of Christ and even even consenting to some of what he taught about himself and about us This is not the same as believing in his name. Believing in his name. Receiving is not then merely the opposite of rejecting. Receiving here is comprehensive. If a person were to receive Jesus as a good teacher, but not as Lord and Savior, they've not really received Jesus. In fact, in Jesus' day, many did this, didn't they? Here's, have you not observed this when you read through the gospel accounts? Many people said, this is our king. Make him our king. We receive this guy as our king. But did they receive him as the son of God? As the sacrificial lamb? As the one who would call them to repentance? No. They wanted the king to destroy the Roman occupiers. They they wanted somebody to to bring them back into the spotlight as God's people. That's what they wanted. And so they wanted that of Jesus. They received that, but they did not believe in his name. And so the reception was actually rejection. If a person rejects any true thing about Jesus, it cannot be said. That he or she has received and believed in his name. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, hold on, Rich, are, what you, are you saying 
that if I have any wrong thoughts about Jesus or in, incomplete thoughts, man, I don't know about that doctrine that he said, I need to get to the bottom of that, that you're not a believer, that you're just new. No, I'm not saying that at all. There's a dramatic difference between not knowing something and rejecting outright what has been clearly conveyed. Make sense? I say this all the time at a wedding. When I have two people together standing there looking at each other all starry-eyed and uh, they're, they're, they're all in their, 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 their best clothes and stuff and this is a whole special moment and I say, you need to love each other. And like, yeah, I got it. Check down. Check, check. Got it. I'm like, no, it's not always going to be that easy because there may be some things that are going to get in the way of this love, right? And what you're saying today at this wedding ceremony is I receive all of her. And, he, and she's saying, I receive all of him, even the stuff I don't yet know. Even the things I've not yet learned. All of them. So that, so that at three months later, when they come back and sit down with me and go, I didn't know she snores every night, man. I go, that's what you accepted. That's what you embraced. All of her. All of her. In a similar way, when, when we believe in the name, when, when we receive him in that way, we receive all that is true of him. So that we say, whatever I find, whatever I learn about him as I grow in relationship with this Christ, whatever is true about him, that's what I want. I'm with him. I'm with him. Wherever he goes, I'm with him. Whatever he does, I want to do that. Whatever he commands, I want my life to conform to it. That's the way we are to receive Christ. And if a person says, I want to receive Christ in these categories of life, but not this one, we say, I don't know I can call you a believer. Because to believe in his name, to receive him, is comprehensive. You don't get to divide Jesus up and take the parts that your current flesh prefers. Remember when Peter did this? Do you remember when Peter, literally in Matthew 16, just acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? So what's he receiving him as? The Christ! I receive you as Messiah. I receive you as healer. He, of course, received him as king. I receive you as the son of God. And then Jesus says, okay, okay now. You you got that? Okay, good. I'm going to the cross. No, you will not. Remember that? He rebuked Jesus. because He did not receive Jesus as the sacrifice. He received him as the other things. And Jesus goes, nope, nope. You can have all of me. Or none of me. Brothers and sisters, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We must believe in his person. We must believe in his name. He is the boss of every decision in your life. Every thought that you think, every belief that you uphold, he has authority over it all. And what is the benefit of receiving or believing in Jesus' name? He, be, he gave the right to become children of God. Excusia. That's the word for authority. It's the word for power. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Exactly the same word. He gave the authority, the right to become children of God. I want to begin by clarifying, clarifying something on this line. The fact that we are all image bearers of God, as I've argued in this text previously, provides that one could say all humankind are children of God in this sense, right? So if somebody means to say all of God's children, all of humanity, we, okay, there's a general sense in which that's true. He's the father of all creation, yes. 
Additionally, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, as a nation, are occasionally referred to as God's son or sons, a family language, him as their father. That is also the case, specifically about the Jews as opposed to the Gentiles. But this is not the way the New Testament uses this phrase, in a universal and exhaustive sense. And I'm willing to spend just a couple more minutes here, because we live in Utah and see and are surrounded by the glaring errors of Mormonism. You need to know this. Many times I've spoken with uh, Mormons on the street or uh, neighbors, people that I've known, and we've gotten to the idea of God being a father to humankind. And uh, I've actually had a, a handful of occasions somebody ask, the prob- you know, kind of point to the problem of hell as Christians view it, heaven and hell, these eternal places that people can go to. And they say, how is it that God can be good if he sends his children to hell? To which I quickly reply, he doesn't. None of God's children will ever end up in hell. Zero. 100% of God's children will live with him forever in heaven. Done. In fact, technically, only in Mormonism, every person in hell, outer darkness, is a child of God. That's your problem, not mine. Why? Because not everyone is a child of God. This is the kind of thing that if you said this outside of Utah, there's probably far more times Christians go, yeah, we got it, move on. But in Utah, you got to slow down bold letters, like just make sure, because it's just around us all the time. Many of you may have come out of Mormon backgrounds or just kind of had that influence, so hear that again. Not everyone is a child of God. John 8, 42 through 44. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says this to them. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. He goes on to say, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So who does Jesus say is the father of these Pharisees? Jewish people, old covenant members. The devil is their father. He even says to them during their missionary efforts in Matthew 23, as he's given the woes to the Pharisees, he says, you send your missionaries uh, to go over sea and ocean and, and river and mountain, and you make your converts twice the sons of hell as yourselves, he says to them. 1 John 3.10 says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The whole Bible is so clear on this. There are so many verses. I, for sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of them. The Bible does not say everyone is a child of God. It says that we can be given the right to become what we are not. We're not children of God by birth. We can become children of God. We can be, and this is the doctrine, adoption. We can be adopted into the family of God. And so when we call God our father, we really mean that. He's our adopted father. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So who's born of God? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
I've said this before. I'll say it quickly here because I think it might be helpful. Sisters, do you hear that son language? It can be easy sometimes for us in our modern day to quickly just kind of internalize. That means children generally. That means, you know, sons and daughters. It doesn't mean sons and daughters. I want you to know this. It means sons, sons, masculine. And this is actually very important because the inheritance in the Old Testament day was passed down to the sons. There were exceptions. Exceptions were made when there weren't sons. Well, what is the prop- where does the property go to? To nobody? No, it goes to the daughters. But it chiefly goes to the firstborn son, and the rest of the sons get a smaller portion. That's the way it worked. And so if the texts of Scripture were saying, hey, brothers and sisters in Christ, y'all get inheritance rights as sons and daughters, That would mean that some sons would get some things that the daughters wouldn't. You you get this? This is actually really important to internalize. I want to read for you Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So all of God's children end up with him. Amen. But we get the inheritances of a firstborn son in Christ. So sisters, you don't just get the inheritance that a daughter might have gotten in the Old Testament. You get the inheritance that the firstborn son would have gotten. And in Christ then, you are seen as a son of God. It doesn't remove femininity. It's you are seen in that way. That's the way you get your inheritance in Christ. And there's any part of you that goes like, man, that feels so weird for me to think of myself as a son. Yeah, I think of myself as the bride of Christ. So how do you think that is? Right? It's actually, a, it's, you see that? See how beautiful that is? This is why that, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Because we all get the same inheritance. And that's different from Mormonism too, of course. If you're not a believer here today, you need to know this. The gospel declares very, very clearly, in your sins, as a natural born human, you are not a child of God. You're not a child of God. He is not your father. You have a different father. And that father will pay out an awful wage because that father considers you a slave. The Bible tells us repeatedly that in our sins, we are slaves to sin and slaves to death. And that's the wage of sin. Your slave master will pay a wage to you. And the wages of sin is death. that the wonderful and free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, that we be set free from the slavery to sin, that we go from being not children of God to by belief, by receiving Jesus, by believing in his name, we have been given the right to become children of God and to call him our father. If you're not a believer today, you need to repent of your sins. You need to let go of anything that's keeping you from fully receiving Jesus. Not the the little, uh, well, I'll set a couple of things about me down, and here I'll I'll one-arm hug Jesus. I'll, I'll give you this. No, drop all of it. That means repent of it. Let go of all the things you're holding on to for hope. Let go of all of it. Give up everything and turn fully to Jesus Christ. Receive him. Believe on him for salvation. It is your only hope. And when that happens, you will be adopted into the household of God. He will become your adopted father. And all the inheritance that the perfect, righteous, sinless, firstborn son deserves gets passed to you. 
Jesus went to the cross even as a perfect being to bear the punishment for the sins of all who will believe. And if you believe on him and everything that he said about himself, who he was, what he promised, what he accomplished, you too can have eternal life. And as he raised from the dead, you and I can raise to new life and be in the presence of the Father for all eternity. Please turn from your sins. Receive and believe in his name. It is your only hope. And join us and become numbered as one of God's children. The text continues. This is a comma. And the next, the next verse says this. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who've received, believed in his name, are given the right to become children of God. Okay, so, so we're given the right to become that. How is it that we actually are born? How is it that we actually come into that newness of life? How is it that we go from not being born to being born? The author takes great lengths here to guard us from error. Just look with me here. He says, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So there's three negatives here. You see that? We see these all over the Bible, and they're there to warn us from error, to keep us from thinking wrong things. I just quoted Acts 4.12 for you a little bit ago. It started, nor is there salvation in any other. It's trying to keep us from thinking there could be salvation in any other. Not by works. Well, that's to keep us from thinking that salvation can be by works. You see, those not pieces of, our, of the language here are serving as, I, lo- I love the illustration, guardrails. They're guardrails to keep us from thinking wrongly. And one of the reasons that I just personally like that modern illustration of guardrails is because, ask yourself the question, where do they put guardrails on the highway? They put guardrails either in the place that people are likely to go off the road or in places that if they went off the road, it would be catastrophic, right? So open desert, if there's a turn, if you, if you swerve off the road, you're, you're probably going to be just fine. You just come right back on the road. When there's a cliff, guardrail. Likewise, even straight traffic, if it's oncoming and you going into oncoming traffic would destroy your life and many others, guardrail. Why? Because they're the places that there's an expectation a person could be prone to error. God knows that people are prone to error in these areas. And he lovingly takes care to tell us to not fall for these common mistakes. So what are these three mistakes that might be in the mind of the reader that we should be careful to not think. Let's walk through these together. The first is not of blood. As I've already noted, the Jews would have considered themselves God's people. So if a man in John's day were to hear the previous verse read out loud, it would not be at all surprising for him to conclude, oh wait, become children of God. Oh wait, hey, I'm a Jew. My father's Abraham. So uh, that's me, that's me, children of God. Got it, check. Woo, good thing I'm a child of God. I'm not one that rejected. And so, John makes it clear that is not what he's saying. No, 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 no. Not by your bloodline. Not by the pedigree, the list of those who've come before you that you can trace back to a promise made to Abraham. Not, not that. Born not that way, thinker. Don't presume. God makes children, and not of those who have been born into that relationship with him by blood. That is not how a person becomes a member of this covenant. So, so just because a man is born of a Jewish family, that does not make him a child of God. 
if, if, if a man in the first century, reading this for the first time, uh, were to, to live in the diaspora, kind of in the, in the scattered areas where many of the Jewish people ended up all over the Mediterranean, and he were to hear of this great and mighty work of this God, of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and he were to, wow, that God's amazing, and he brought the people out of slavery. That's incredible. How do I get some of that? And then his grandparent were to go, hey, I know we haven't really lived like it, but you just need to know. You actually are Jewish. You're in that line. And he goes, ha! Child of God. No. It's not how it works in the new covenant. Quick pause here so I don't miss an opportunity. Young people, children, listen up for a second. You are commanded by Jesus to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. You're commanded by that, by the scriptures. You cannot rely on the faith of your parents. Nobody can say this. Nobody in the new covenant can say, well, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm born as a child of God because my parents are believers. No, you can't. You need, you need your own uh, parachute as you dive out of the plane like they need theirs. There's no umbilical cord faith. I'm saved because they're saved. No, to become a child of God is not of blood. In the Old Testament, people did become it that way, not in the New Covenant. And that's the second warning, not of the will of the flesh. You see that? Not of blood. Don't trace your bloodlines and have hope in that. Second, nor of the will of the flesh. Very related to the first one, but will of the flesh is a phrase that's kind of referring to procreation. It's a sexual uh, uh, making of babies, passing it on to the next generation. That's what's going on. That's the idea of will of the flesh. The, the, the will of two to say, let's make another. Let's make offspring, okay? That's the idea in the second warning. Not a bloodline, not of the blood, not of the will of the flesh, not by procreation. How is it that old covenant members were added to the number? I want you to ask that question for yourself. Think for a moment on it. In other words, if you knew in the old covenant day that there were X number of Old Covenant members. How could you make it X plus one? And the answer is, have a baby. Have a baby. Will of the flesh. You can, you, you can choose to come together, unite in marriage, have a child, and that child will be an Old Covenant member. It, absolutely, that's the way that it worked. The number of Old Covenant members would go up by one every time a baby was born into the Old Covenant. That's how it worked. But this is not how it works in the New Covenant. And John is going to great lengths to make that clear. Under the Old Covenant, covenant members were made by men. New Covenant members are not made by men. It is one of the single biggest differences between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Old Covenant, men made Old Covenant members and they failed miserably at it. That's why a person could be an Old Covenant member and you'd say, are you one that loves God or are you an Old Covenant member that hates God? Because both were included. But New Covenant members are not made by men. And that's even made clearer by the next warning. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This is not by volition. Not by the free will desire of a man to become a child of God. And again, what I think is in mind is John is warning from an old covenant thinking. 
Because not only would it be the will of men to bring more children into the covenant, but also even a person who was not a descendant of Abraham. There wasn't no hope for him. He could become a covenant member. How? By forsaking his past and by taking on the rite of circumcision. He could become an old covenant member. And was he in the covenant? Yes. Now he is. This is why, again, the Pharisees sent people around the world. They didn't go, hey, are you of Abraham? And they said no. And he's like, oh, well, forget it. Good luck for you. He goes, of course there's a way for you to come into the covenant. And they did that. But it's not how the new covenant works. So summarizing this for a moment, take a look at this. Old covenant members became such by blood, by the will of the flesh, or by the will of men. That's, that's a right thinking. That is how people became old covenant members. But with the new covenant, it is not so. God makes new covenant members. And that's what it says. Who were born not of blood, nor the will, nor the flesh, but by what? Of God. It is God's will who becomes new covenant members. He determines who becomes new covenant members. How a person becomes a child of God today is not the same as in the Old Testament. In the new birth, the Bible stresses that it is God who determines who is born again. He decides. He sovereignly decrees. In the same way, and this is, I think, a little bit what's in mind here with this idea, in the same way that you didn't get to choose whether or not you were conceived or born, your father and mother did that. You didn't choose that. They made that choice on your behalf without your consultation. In the same way, you and I don't get to choose who gets the new birth. Our Heavenly Father chooses that for us. He decides who he will bring into this family. He decides whom he will adopt. This is why it does not say, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of faith. It doesn't say that. But of God. He determines. Just like our birth, our first birth. Same as with our second birth. God is the final determiner of whom he adopts. He determines that. And there's much more on that particular doctrine in future weeks in John. But I want to conclude with a few thoughts here. A bit of application and conclusion. First, first I want to bring this up. Why birth? Why that illustration? You might remember that in John 3, a couple chapters from now, when Jesus brings up being born again, it's so fresh to the mind of Nicodemus, of the Pharisee he's talking to there. He's like, wait, 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 how can a man climb back into his mother's womb a second time, or be born a second time, right? Do you remember that, that the conversation? And why? Because he's thinking of it in this physical way. He's thinking, born again? Whoa, that's not familiar to me. What do you mean, born again? How does that work? But this is the illustration that's being used. And why? Because it's just that dramatic. It's, it's not like choosing red socks over blue socks. It's not like choosing down, to live down this end of the street or this. It's not even like choosing to marry this spouse and not that one. It's not even like choosing uh, to live in this state or that one, this country or that one, to go to this college or that one. It is more significant than all of that. It is as significant, even more, 
than your first birth coming into the world, into existence. No other illustration will do. When a person becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is converted, receives Christ, believes in his name, everything changes. Everything changes. I was talking with some brothers and sisters at dinner this weekend. We had some families over, spending some time together. And I remember one, one brother asked another brother a little about his testimony. And kind of a, a part of that that just comes with it in the flow was, and then after I got saved, everything changed. All my desires weren't what they used to be. And the things that I used to focus on aren't even there anymore. And everything, I, I just, I'm not even like the same person. Because that's the new birth. I want to give a couple of warnings and encouragements in this. First, I want to speak to the newer believer. Newer believer. A few months, a few years maybe. Someone who would say, yeah, I'd, I'd consider myself a newer believer. I've observed many times a new believer who is born again, then sets to ransacking everything in their old life that they even think has the width of not conforming to Christ, right? They set out, they set out to, to make war on their life. And sometimes other believers who, get, who, who see this happen and watch it take place get very uncomfortable when a person starts doing that. Has anyone, has anyone ever, ever seen this before? Have you ever observed this? And the reason that your fellow Christian might get a bit uncomfortable by your newfound vigor, could be owing to their maturity. They, they, they know what this is like. They've watched people take the sledgehammer to life, and they're so quick. They, they whoa, 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 stop. Not, not, not that part. <laughs> that, that, that's good. Leave, leave that there. Praise God that that was there. You don't have to smash that part. Maybe it's maturity. But maybe it is because some of their fire has grown cold. Newer believer, maybe it is because your vigor, your zealousness may be exposing in your older brother or sister places in which they've retreated back to old habits. And you could do great service to them. Now, how would you know? How do you know the difference? How, new believer, how can you tell the difference between the brother who, who, is, who is saying, hey, in a mature sense, I want you to crush all of the nonconformity to Christ out of you, and the other one who feels uncomfortable because now he can't watch the same shows with you anymore because you won't, you won't have anything to do with it. How can you know the difference? The answer is very, very obvious. How does he handle the Word of God? If he opens it and says, let me tell you why you shouldn't smash that part of your old life. That is actually a common grace of God. So, so, so you got married when you were a non-believer, and, and now you're a believer. Don't go smash your marriage up. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There's verses for this. But the brother or sister who goes, you know, I don't really have a verse, but it just feels legalistic. I'd push back on that. So newer believer, hear this. Newer believer, everything in your life should change. Everything should change when you come to saving faith in Christ. All of the stuff. So, I know you could hurt things that don't deserve smashing, but sometimes you need to hear the encouragement from those who say, smash on, brother, <laughs> and I'll do that. Our lives should look very different. Change everything. 
Ask Christ to invade every area of your life and beat it into submission. Yes. There's also a warning here for older brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters, beware when your desires shift back toward the old things. You've become a new creation. You're newly born of God. You're now, you're, you're now a child of God. You now, you now refer to him as your father. And if th- there, there may sometimes be, be places in your life where, uh, where during that season, the things that you once craved in your flesh and then forsook for Christ are now becoming a little bit more tempting to you again. And we should expect that the enemy will once again try to rekindle in our flesh a desire for the very things we once mined out. There, of course, is a warning here about a a kind of legalism that the Bible does not support. Of course, of course. Be incredibly slow to judge your brothers and sisters. Be so slow to do it. Be, Be much quicker to go, Lord, if I observe something in them, I'm not so sure about. Go here first and say, God, show me, show me where I'm not lining just right. Teach me how to do that first. But you're kidding yourself if you think that the enemy will not try to reinvigorate old fleshly passions in order to attack you. You're kidding yourself. It worked for years before you were a believer. The enemy doesn't just go, never mind, he's a, he's a believer. She's, she's now saved. She's, she's received Christ. Just leave him alone. No. And he will likely go after those very same areas in your life. So be warned. Be warned of that. Be warned. Embrace all the things of the new life and never go back. Lastly, never cease to marvel at the fact that you get to call God your father. Don't cease to marvel at it. To go, that, that familiar? Savior, yes. Lord, yes. King, yes. Master, yes. Creator, yes. But Father? Yes, yes. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. That's the kind of love. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us, that it did not know Him. We unite together with Him in that. The Son of God became a Son of Man, that sons of men might become sons of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can call you that. That we've been instructed to call you Father, to relate to you as Father. And not because of any sinlessness, not because of any perfection in us, but because you adopted us. You made us your children. You brought us into an inheritance in your son. You brought us into relationship with you. And not because you looked at the panoply of humanity and you picked us for some good and righteous, holy things that you saw in us that were not present in others, but not by any condition met in us, in any of creation. Father, you adopted us into your family, and for that we are eternally grateful, eternally grateful. Help us to never forsake that. Help us to never quit marveling in it. Help us to weep over it forever and ever. And help us to desire to draw others into the family, that it may grow and swell and be filled with more and more voices that worship you as our perfect, eternal 
Father. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.